all scripture is inspired by God. And in some translations, it reads God breathed. All scripture is God breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the person of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. He says that all scripture is inspired by God. And when he says inspired, he's not talking about being inspired like a a great novel would be inspired. He's talking about these are, these are the very words of God. They have come forth from the mouth of God. They have been spoken by him, by the same one that spoke the worlds into existence. The same one that hung the stars in space. He is so powerful that he can bring together a book comprised of many different books over a period of 5,000 years. Remember that one day is like a thousand years to the Lord and a thousand years is like a day. So time is nothing to him. And the fact that he used different people to bring this book to us just should make it more miraculous. Now, a few Sundays ago, a couple of Sundays ago, we talked about church unity and how Jesus in his last prayer prayed, Lord, please just let them, Father, let them get along with each other. Lord, may they all be one just as we are one. And yet, if you look at the church today, it's fragmented. It's splintered so many different ways. And one of the reasons why is because we can't agree on what Scripture even is. And so I want to take this Sunday, next Sunday, the next Sunday, to go over these three pillars that should be uh, the very basis of unity in God's church in the church of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This Sunday, we're looking at scripture. Next Sunday, we're going to look at the cross. And the following Sunday, we're going to look at Jesus. Those are three things we ought to all be of one accord on. And yet those are the bones of contention for us in such ways. But it all begins in our age with our view of this book of the book that John Wesley spoke of when he said that he was a man of one book. And this was the book that was the very foundation of his life. Now, he was a man of many books. In fact, that he read, he studied, he uh, dabbled in science. Uh, I was uh, at his his last uh, parsonage uh, a few years ago and got to see an electric generator that he had. You turn a crank and it would uh, uh, put electricity jolts through people, you know, that sort of thing was supposed to make people feel better somehow. But uh, he was always piddling with stuff like that. 
stuff like that. Uh, but that did, but the fact that he had an inquiring scientific mind did not negate the power of the words that came directly from God. Today, I have heard, well, not this, this morning, but let's say in this day and age, just recently, I have heard different people saying, well, why should I base my life on a book that was written by a bunch of old men thousands of years ago? And that's their view of the Bible. And there are those who are in our church today, when I say our church, our denomination today, that view this book just like that. They don't see it as God's word. And because they can't see it as God's word, they can't draw any strength from it. They can't draw any life from it. And so that's why I want us to look at this this morning. Because you see the way, if you look up above, if you've got your Bibles with you, if you look up above this, you know, at the very at the first part of this particular passage, he says in, in the third chapter, beginning with the first verse, this is what precedes Paul saying that scripture is good for these things. He says, but realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come for men will be lovers of self, self-centered. Lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers. And this is something we see more and more of all the time. Every time you look up, look at the news, you'll see people reviling each other. It's just heart, it's disheartening, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, but denying its power. You know what he says about those people? Avoid such men as these. If you avoided such people as those, how many people would you be around? Somebody, this, one of these categories fits just about everybody today, doesn't it? For among them also are those who enter into households and captivate weak women weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of truth. Always learning and never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. And this is what he contrasts when he comes on down and he says that, uh, he says, but you continue in the things you have learned. These other people, they're always learning. They're always going to Bible studies. They're always uh, uh, digging through some new uh, uh, author's book or something. And they're never coming to a knowledge of the truth. 
Wonder why? Maybe it's because they really don't want to know the truth. But anyway, he says, Timothy, you've learned this stuff. You've learned it and become convinced. Once you, you, you learn it and then you're convinced of it. You hold it to be true. You start working out of it. And guess what? It proves itself to you as you apply it to your lives. But see, you have learned and become convinced, knowing from whom you have learned them. You know, who your teachers are, are important. When it comes to Bible study, who you listen to is important because there are those that are not grounded in the faith, really. They may be religious Christians, but they're not grounded in the true faith. What this, this is what's happened in our denomination and the Lutheran church I was reading just last night and other denominations. There's this way of looking at the Bible that came about in the 1800s that became very popular and has gotten so popular now that uh, unless you're using this method of Bible study, then you're old fashioned and uh, you're behind the times and nobody will even sell your books if you write them. Uh, there's, uh, well, the name of it, what's it, what it's called is historical criticism. And I know it amazed me when I got to, uh, uh, seminary and uh, they started treating the Bible like it was some sort of a, uh, scientific, uh, object to be studied. And this is just it. They try to turn Bible study into science. <coughs> Instead of letting God's word speak to science, what they do is they come to the Bible with no faith whatsoever. In fact, the way historical criticism works is you set aside any belief in the supernatural, any belief in the fact there might even be a God. You set all that aside and then you study the books of the Bible as if they were just any other sort of literature. And from that, you try to determine what is it that the author was trying to get across at that time in that setting. And, uh, and then you uh, determine what the author's message is to the people at that time. And that doesn't necessarily mean that that applies to this time because that was back then and this is now and people have changed and he was speaking to one culture and we're living in another culture and like, uh, well, the main, the big issue today is homosexuality. Let's face it. That is what's getting ready to divide our church in two. Because there's those people that want to say that that was a different culture, a different time. And that's the thing that they're uh, basing all this stuff on. But what they're doing, they're coming out of the historical critical method. And whenever you do that, all of a sudden, this if you approach things in that way, this book is no more inspirational or value to you than a secular book of poems. You might get something out of it, but you're not going to get the power of God. 
because that has been set aside before you even start looking at it. But whenever you look at it like John Wesley looked at it, like Martin Luther looked at it, as being the inspired, not by, uh, like I say, like a novel or something, but by being, by moving on people through different ages to, be, to write down what he wanted us to have today. Whenever you look at it like that, all of a sudden it can make a difference in your life. Now, next week I'm going to be looking at how to study the Bible. Um, we're going to spend two times on, on, on scripture because people have been so just uh, immersed in Bible studies that employ the historical critical method that they, uh, they, they don't believe that God even moves today. And so they're confused about uh, even how to go about studying the Bible. So we're going to look at that next week. But this week, I just want us to remember that this is God's word. Now, uh, in, in connection with that, realizing that everything, remember the passage that I read where Paul said in the last days, these things are going to be like this. And he's just describing our country right now. He said, this is going to happen. Well, uh, the thing is that that's one of those things that's been, it's born out 2000 years later. It's true. It's happening just like this. And the Bible is true. And like uh, we said in our prayer, whenever Jesus was praying at one point, he said, thy word is truth. And he was talking about the Old Testament at that point in time. That was the Bible of their day. And Jesus viewed the Bible of, or the Old Testament as, uh, as, as something that was God's word. And if we are really followers of Christ, why should we look at it any differently than he did? And he says, uh, he, he, he calls the, uh, the, oh, who are the Sadducees and the scribes and all to task. And he says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these, talk about the Old Testament, that testify about me. Jesus lived out of the Old Testament. Whenever uh, uh, he was hanging on the cross, he cried out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. And it says in Mark 15, 34, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22, 1 begins, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And what follows in Psalm 22 is a depiction of the crucifixion written 700 years or so before Jesus went to the cross. He saw the Old Testament pointing to him. In Luke 25 or 24, 25 through 27, before uh, or after he had been raised from the dead and he was uh, walking along the uh, road to Emmaus, he uh, was talking to the people there and he said, Oh, foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, 
He explained to them the things concerning himself in all scriptures. And then whenever he had his disciples together for just about the last time, I think it was the third time he was together with them after he was resurrected. You know, he spent 40 days with them after he rose from the dead. It says, now he said to them, these are my words, which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day and that repentance and forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. So Jesus viewed the Old Testament as part of the Bible. Now then, how about the New Testament? Well, Peter in the New Testament refers to Paul's writings as scripture. Did you know that? Even while they were both still living, he already looked on Paul's epistles as scripture. And he said uh, about Paul's, uh, says, uh, therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom uh, given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the scriptures to their destruction. So uh, Peter is looking on uh, Paul's writings as scripture right after they've been written. And then uh, we see uh, the early church in the uh, just right after Jesus' death, looking at all the, at the we have the Gospels uh, within 40 years after he died, being circulated around through the churches. We have uh, all this all this stuff that 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 comes together in this book that the early church finally, even though they were living out of these things before it was officially designated our canon. This is what has come to us through God's people to this point, to where this is our book. This is what we live out of. And so uh, uh, I just want you to just quickly, I'll go through, why do I believe this book? Because I was one of these that was just like all these other historical critical people. I was looking at the Bible like that, and it made no sense to me. I couldn't find where to get started in it because if this is so much, anyway, but what happened was whenever I prayed and said, God, if you're real, let me know. He began letting me see first and foremost that scripture was coming alive around me all the time. The passage where Jesus talks about wars and rumors of wars and uh, uh, pestilences and earthquakes and all those things. That's today, folks. He said it was going to happen in the last days. 
Just as Paul said, all these other things we just read about were going to happen in the last days. I began to open up the newspaper and see the Bible being played out. God's word coming true just time after time. And so uh, and then I began to see biblical principles at work in the in, in business. Uh, J.C. Penney's, I worked for them for a while. I've shared with you how the slogan was, the customer's always right. And this came out of the golden rule. J.C. Penney wanted us living by the golden rule there. And so when people would bring in ragged shorts that were had been washed till they were just falling apart and had a Sears tag in them, he said, I just bought these last weekend. Look at them. Would say, well, let's see if we could find you some to replace these because you see the customer was always right. And we'd find replacements for them that were close. I mean, we didn't carry that brand, obviously, but we would give them a brand new pair of shorts and apologize for them. But we treated them like they were telling the truth. And you know what? That paid off in spades for years for J.C. Penney as he applied biblical principles to his business. And uh, then, uh, my goodness, I began to see where Jesus said, the thief comes but to kill and to steal and to destroy. I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. And I saw how in my own life, when I asked myself, okay, so why is it that everything I think is going to make life fun? Why is it killing me? Why is it killing brain cells? Why is it giving me lung cancer? Why is it, you, why is it doing all these things? Why is it that all these things that the world says make life worthwhile are killing me? The answer is right here. If they're things that direct you away from God, drugs and alcohol are a substitute to try to fill that God-shaped vacuum that's within our heart. So many other things, other addictions are just trying to fill that hole that's made to be created to be filled by God with other things as substitutes and nothing is going to suffice. Uh, world events, we've talked about those. And finally, when I realized I was convinced that what scripture said was true, then I realized about those things it must be true about what it said about sin and hell. And when I realized that I was lost and there was nothing I could do to save myself, nothing I could do to remove any of the pain that I'd inflicted on other people in my past, nothing I could do to undo any of the things that I had done, nothing to undo any of the irreverence I'd shown toward God, nothing to undo my arrogance. Nothing to undo any of that stuff. That's whenever he reminded me that all this other stuff is true. And the cross, what the Bible says about the cross was true also. But I didn't know how to apply the cross. It says that those who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. In desperation, in wanting to make the cross real, when I cried out and just said, Jesus, help me from the depth of my being, someone stepped into that room and you couldn't see them, but they were there. Pure, unadulterated, unconditional love. And that hole that I've been trying to fill in all sorts of different ways 
was only filled when I did what the Bible says we have to do. Call upon the name of the Lord. When I did that, he was there. When I did that, my life changed. When anyone does that, their life changes. They are transformed. And the supernatural power of God that the world wants to totally deny is made real and becomes clear. And so I'll just close by saying that I want to encourage you to quit just looking at this book with a bunch of questions and start looking on it as God calling out to you, as God wanting to share with you just what you need in this life today. His word is true. His word is truth. And his word is still truth in a time that's so messed up on what's really true or not that we can't even decide whether boys or girls ought to go into boys or girls' bathrooms. I mean, how far from the truth can you get? And so in this setting, that's what Paul was saying. He was telling Timothy, no, these times are going to be coming. And when those times come, God's word, God's scripture is there. And you live out of it instead of what the world is trying to throw at you. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.